This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. This week, Brexit negotiations grind to a halt again as Brussels and the UK draw mutually exclusive red lines on the Irish border problem. I talk to James Forsyth and Dan Hannan on what next for Brexit. We also look a little deeper into the methods and mission of Bellingcat, the investigators that unveiled the true identities of the Salisbury suspects. And last, we investigate a sex industry that is trying to become more ethical. First, Brexit negotiations have hit a brick wall again, and this time no deal looks closer than ever before. The latest snag over the Irish border seems impossible to solve. But all this is an EU strategy to divide and conquer, argues James Forsyth in this week's cover piece. Brussels has used Ireland to carve up the UK and back it into a corner. James joins me now along with Dan Hannan, Tory MEP and leading Brexiteer. So James, for listeners who haven't been following Brexit closely, can you explain how it is that we have got to this position? Well, we're in an impasse because before you can get out of the EU, you need a withdrawal agreement. The European Union said they want three particular things covered off in that withdrawal agreement. They want the money the UK is going to pay on leaving, which is pretty much settled. They want citizens' rights dealt with, which again is basically done. And then there's this issue of the Irish border. Now, the UK say, hang on, how can we know what we need to do on the Irish border to keep the Irish border as it is today after Brexit if we don't know what the trade relationship is between the EU and the UK. The EU say, tough, we've got to settle this now, you've got to commit to certain things, and the UK government is deeply uncomfortable with that, and what it's particularly uncomfortable with is something that it signed up to in December, which the EU has then interpreted quite heavily in a way the UK government doesn't like, which is to essentially say... If the future trading relationship between the UK and the EU is divergent, then Northern Ireland would essentially stay in the customs union and carry on following EU rules, despite the fact it's part of the UK. Theresa May says, I can't accept that because it's dividing up the UK. The EU are essentially saying, tough. And that is why the talks have reached an impasse. The way out, Theresa May thinks, is a kind of UK-wide backstop. So there would still be a backstop, but it applied to the whole of the UK, at which point her cabinet say... But how do we get out of this? The EU won't accept a time limit on the backstop. So now the question is whether you can come up with a kind of escape mechanism that is sufficient to satisfy the cabinet and parliament that the UK is not inside this thing permanently, but is also sufficiently rigid for the EU to feel that it it has, in, in negotiating terms, won in inverted commas. Daniel, do you think this always needed to be this complicated or has Theresa May made it messier than necessary? No, we've made a series of unforced errors over the last two years. The first was triggering Article 50 before our contingency planning was ready. Uh, This, by the way, in violation of what the Vote Leave campaign was saying during the, the referendum. We made a commitment in Vote Leave saying we will not begin this process until all of our systems are ready to go. Then there was the crazy acceptance of the EU sequencing, the decision to give them all the money before we even start talking about trade. And then, of course, this Irish backstop, which I think even our Europhile mandarins were surprised to see us agreeing so easily. There's no way that this can work if it contains a backstop of any kind. It's not about time-limiting it or making it conditional. 
as long as two parties are going into a negotiation where one at the outset has said, we promise that if the talks break down, we will make painful concessions to ensure that you're still happy with the outcome, there can be no talks. That, that should be obvious whether you voted remain or leave. And it's extraordinary that we've got ourselves into this pickle. Daniel says it's extraordinary, James. Are you surprised by how messy it's been? I am surprised by how messy it's been. I think, I think if you were going through the kind of the UK mistakes, I think the biggest single mistake was not only to trigger Article 50 before the contingency plans were in place, but to trigger Article 50 before the UK knew what it wanted. I've been Article 50 sets a clock, a two-year clock ticking. And for no other reason, one reads, than to have something to say at a party conference. Yeah. I mean, unless somebody knows better. I've no, never no, heard no. a good explanation uh, of why we did that. And what, what, I, what I think is odd is that it was only at Chequers this summer that the government actually came up with, you know, this is what we want message to the EU. I think the other mistake was, uh, Theresa May at first appeared to realise that David Cameron's problem in the negotiation was he was asking the EU for things. The Lancaster House speech was meant to be a kind of reversal away from that. So it said, we don't want to stay in the single market. So we're not asking you to give us a special status or this or that. We want to negotiate a trade deal with you. The UK has then kind of flipped around and is now asking essentially to stay in bits of a single market, which is obviously, for understandable reasons, the EU are like, well, you are cherry picky if you stay in that well, bit. I, I don't think bit. that's right. I don't think that is obvious. I mean, if any other country if any other potential trade partner had come to the EU with the package that Britain was offering at Salzburg, if, say, Canada or Japan or someone had come forward and said, we will unilaterally accept all of your good standards and we will pay you for the privilege and we'll defend your borders and we promise never to undercut you on labour law or environmental policy and so on, we know what the EU's reaction would have been. They'd have said, quick, quick, get the idiots to sign before they come to their senses. But they want a demonstration effect. Right, so, so uh, that's, and that's what makes a deal almost impossible, that if, if we've put ourselves in a position where the EU doesn't have to do a deal with us, unless it chooses to be punitive and Carthaginian and exemplary and all the rest of it, then it is impossible to see any deal going through. And, you know, none of this, I mean, you know, that there is a sort of a constant echo of, of sort of told you so anger from some Remainers saying, well, this was always inevitable. It absolutely wasn't. We have every time there was a fork in the road since the, the referendum, we've, we've made bad decisions. If we had gone for a kind of Swiss type deal from the beginning, none of these problems would have arisen. And that, that seems to me indisputable. I think it is quite clear that if the UK had known what it's wanted at the start, it would have had a much better chance of getting it. I mean, there is another problem, which is that you can't uninvent the backstop. So Dan has, has spoken eloquently about kind of EA EFTA as an answer to the problem, which I, I think now you actually find more public support for than you would have found at the start of its process. But the problem with that now is, is twofold. One, I think the EU would say, you know, EFTA doesn't deal with our concerns about the Irish border. And the other issue is that I think you would find the EU saying, well, we won't actually want to put lots of provisions in because we know that they're not really serious about staying in this EEA for that long. They view this as a kind of temporary resting place before they go out, you know, and try and create this alternative economic model that the EU is so determined not to see exist. One of the things that I am puzzled by at the moment is what plan B ends up being but, other than no Jeff, deal. We're, we're all in danger of being too close to this to see the, the the massive error at the centre of it, which is, you say the backstop can't be disinvented. Maybe so, but you cannot have a deal on anything. I mean, forget that it was the EU. Just you imagine you were buying a house or something where you go in at the beginning and you say, before we even start talking about the price, I want you to understand that whatever you regard as minimally acceptable, that is what I'm going to have to pay you, right? I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, it's incredible that this, this even needs saying. James, in your cover piece, you talk about 
plans for a series of sort of mini agreements, a mitigated no deal. Just explain what that would mean. So I think one thing that some cabinet ministers are beginning to talk about in private, Philip Hammond came close to talking about in cabinet this week, is this idea that, right, if we're not able to get a deal with the EU, you need to get a deal to keep the planes flying. You need to get a deal to kind of keep customs checks to a minimum. And you basically want the kind of provisions that advanced economies that don't have a specific trade deal with each other have, but still allow them to trade with each other. You know, famously, the EU and the US don't have a trade deal, but they still do lots of trade. And the argument that is beginning to be made is, look, if we paid the EU the money that they want, they might sign off on those deals. And that once you've signed off on those deals, you, you've kind of gone out from under the backstop and, and offers you the chance in time to have a kind of fresh start negotiation. I think it'd be extraordinary if we didn't get those deals, right? And one way of looking at it is, is this. When we talk about aviation landing slots being denied or trade being deliberately disrupted, which is what's now being mooted, that you know we would use the letter of the law to subject everything to the, the kind of maximum allowed tests, this is something that the EU has never applied to Russia. It's never applied to Iran, right? Even with unfriendly states, the EU still has the basic rules on kind of exchange of information, police cooperation, customs procedures, aviation landing slots and so on. So we would then be talking about the EU stopping just short of declaring war on Britain. Yeah. Again, it's incredible that we're actually talking about this. It seems to me utterly unthinkable that we would be there. But if that were to happen, then I think the UK public would be ready for some very radical changes in economic policy because people would feel that they were under siege and and they'd be prepared to respond accordingly. And James, has this week's EU summit moved things on at all? I think it has avoided moving things further backwards, if you see what I mean, which is... Uh, Damning with faint praise. Um, which is, I thought it was very telling that when Theresa May came to House of Commons on Monday, she sounded much less pugnacious than she did after Salzburg. Because as the clock ticks down, talking about no deal now seems much more real than it previously did. And I think one of the big questions is that, you know, look, the UK is not well prepared for no deal. But I also think Ireland can't be well prepared for no deal because it will find itself kind of by dint of geography trapped in an almost impossible position. And then I think there are lots of EU countries in which no deal would cause economic dislocation and confusion. The UK is much, much better prepared than it was at the beginning of the summer. That's not saying much, though, is it? uh, uh, No, but I mean, the people in charge are are looking a lot perkier than they were. (laughs) And... And with reason. Now, now I don't want to overdo that. There are some issues that are not subject to unilateral mitigation. In other words, there are some things we can't do anything about. So if, if the French decided to subject every British car and every British lorry to every check that they're allowed, then that is going to cause problems here. Whatever we do on our side, that's not in our hands. Although even there, you know, the port of Zeebrugge, for example, is under the control of the Flemish regional government, whose head keeps on saying, we've got the most fantastic roll-on, roll-off procedures here. If the French are stupid enough to do that, welcome to Zeebrugge. Now, that would still involve disruption. You know, we're geared to go through Kent rather than from Harwich and whatever. And it would, it, but, but these are manageable issues. And I, I think James is, is right. I think that, first of all, I think for the first time, I think no deal is now the likelier option. And I think that's a real pity. Do you uh, agree with not, that, it was James, not my specifically? preferred option. But I am a coward. I'm saying that no deal is at a 45% likelihood. <laughs> Either way, important enough to be making logistical preparations. My guess is that in most cases, those basic kind of bridging arrangements on things like customs facilitation will be put in place. The things that we were originally worried about, 
not having, you know, our planes land or, or, you know, not having a single electricity grid in Ireland. I think those have basically been mapped out. We know what we're going to do about those. There is still going to be the, the possibility of, of queues on the M20. I mean, by the way, that is a possibility now, right? I, that, that, that is my constituency. And whenever there is industrial action by French customs officers or, or police, we get the, the operation stack. This is, this is not something that being in the EU is a inoculation against. It, it can happen in or outside. But I think we are now moving towards a realistic way of managing Britain being an independent country. And here's the funny thing. It's going to be very clear, if we have no deal, that Britain doesn't put any frontier infrastructure in Ireland. I can't imagine Ireland doing it. So we will end up with no border and no deal, and we'll wonder why there was no deal. And finally, James, what can we expect next week? I think next week, I think Theresa May will bring to the Cabinet what the UK's idea for an escape mechanism is. And I think that's that's quite a big moment, because basically, if she can carry the Cabinet on that, then I think she has something to go back into the next stage of the negotiations with. And I think in the kind of reasonable test in the negotiation, if Theresa May is offering to put the whole of it... Now, I understand Dan's objections. If Theresa May is offering to put the whole of the UK in a backstop... Worst outcome imaginable, by the way. Worse than any, worse than no deal, worse than a second referendum, worse than anything else, because it means that Brussels runs all our trade and we have zero voice. But then I think the EU would fail on a reasonableness test if it wouldn't look at what she was proposing. Now, you might say that you would want it to fail. You know, I am reminded of, of one former Vote Leave person who always says to me, in Barnier we trust. Thanks, James and Dan. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. After the Salisbury attack, a little-known news outlet called Bellingcat was the first to definitively reveal the true identities of the two Russian suspects. In this week's magazine, Owen Matthews writes about the methods and mission of Bellingcat. What is this investigative team and how are they achieving results far quicker than the government's secret services? I'm joined by Owen and writer and broadcaster Mary Dejewski to discuss. So Owen, just what is Bellingcat? Well, Bellingcat is an outfit founded by a self-confessed internet nerd and former ladies' underwear salesman called Elliot Higgins from his bedroom in Leicester, which investigates via open-source material on the internet various international mysteries. And it's come to prominence over recent years, particularly since 2014, because their investigations have unveiled things that nobody, certainly not any journalists, and as far as we know, no spooks, have managed to reveal about such burning issues as who was responsible for the downing of the Malaysian airliner MH17 in 2014 over eastern Ukraine, chemical weapons attacks in Syria, and most recently and notoriously about the Skripals. So the question is, we know what they do. They use extraordinarily sophisticated methods to sort of mine, scrape, dig out data on the internet. The big question is, does anyone stand behind them? Are they a front for anybody? And I believe, and I argue in my piece, that the forensics of what they've done and how they've done it, particularly in the Skripal case, actually argues very strongly that they actually really are what it says on the tin. They are actually a team of internet researchers who are willing to do things that neither journalists nor spooks have been able to do. 
Now, Mary, you have disagreed with that in your piece. And I have to say, as a journalist, maybe we're all just very envious of how Bellingcat are able to find information much easier than, than we do. But you think that there's something a bit suspicious going on here. Well, yes. I mean, I think there are two grounds on which I would challenge what Owen said. And I accept a lot of what Owen says in his article, both from the sort of modest beginnings of Bellingcat and their innovative methods, largely but not exclusively using what they call open source materials. But as I say, there are two grounds, I think, for maybe at least posing some questions. The first is the speed with which, and the enthusiasm with which so many people in what we now call the mainstream media, and this includes, to my horror, the BBC, who are treating Bellingcat as a source whose reliability is tantamount to that of the BBC correspondents themselves or Reuters news agency. And I worked for the BBC in news way back when, and there were very strict rules, and I'm extremely surprised that the BBC, among others, sort of takes Bellingcat with very few questions. And the other problem that I have is that I think they've come on quite a long way from the sort of romantic idea of amateurs sleuthing away in an attic somewhere in Leicestershire. And it's not at all clear to me, although Owen does say something about their sources of funding, exactly where their funding comes from and the fact that quite recently they've been recruiting, so they do have money. But they do publish their workings, don't they? They do explain, as Owen says in the piece, how they get this information. So it's not as though they're sort of just suddenly producing information that has could only possibly have been handed to them by the intelligence services. Yes, I mean, I don't see it that way round, actually. You know, I know that, that some aspersions have been cast as though they are getting information from the intelligence services. I don't look at it like that. I look at it almost the other way round, that this is a... It's very convenient for the especially Western intelligence services to be able to draw on material that's being sought out by other people, such as Bellingcat, with a reputation of being amateurs, using methods, including in the case of the Skripal suspects, using methods that actually, we are told, would be totally unacceptable to intelligence services, like buying information from suspect sources on the web, which of course brings me as a supreme sceptic to say, well, you know, how can you trust bought information? Yes, Owen, you do mention in your piece the uh, non-traditional methods that Bellingcat have used for the Salisbury attack investigation, for instance. Do you think that that's acceptable? Yes. First, I'd like to say that, Mary, you're actually, I think you're completely mistaken in claiming that Bellingcat is a source. Bellingcat itself is not a source. Bellingcat is a journalistic organisation that uses sources. We don't have to take Bellingcat's word for anything. So when you say that there's insufficient scepticism, the point is that they do show their workings. It's not that we have to take Bellingcat's word for their investigations. What they've done is they've produced an enormous amount of incredibly detailed forensic information, and that is verifiable. So actually, at no stage are we asked to actually believe Bellingcat as a source of information. They are simply the publicising something which is publicly available and can be easily verified. Now, as to the buying information online, can you trust it? 
nor do Bellingcat trust it. And when we, we need to be specific about this because it is controversial. What Bellingcat did was they used one of the dozens of agencies, and in the reporting for this story, I verified that you just do a Yandex search, which is the Russian equivalent of Google. If you want to get a copy of someone's passport, marriage certificate, business registration documents in Russia, you can. There is an enormous black market for information. But that doesn't mean that... And they use that to obtain a copy of the passport and therefore the passport photograph of one of the Skripal subjects. Now, do they believe that as gospel? No, they don't. The point is that once they have that passport, they then checked it against dozens of open sources you know, through official applications, through confirmation. And they managed to stand up the fact that Alexander Mushkin's car was registered at the GRU headquarters. They managed to actually find that he had been himself decorated as a hero of the Soviet Union. So the point was that the clearly we should be sceptical if an organisation is buying information from shadowy agencies online. But the point is that they themselves share that scepticism because they are actually excellent journalists. And they have used that not as the end point, but as the starting point. And they're very, very clear about that. But Mary, do you accept that some of the information they are presenting is still quite useful. Oh, absolutely. But wh- where I wh- where I sort of disagree again with Owen is that I think we're in danger of being blinded by somebody else's science. Owen refers to you know the absolutely sort of incontrovertible sources and the the forensic work that these people are doing, and I'm sure they absolutely are doing. But the problem is that the rest of us are not in a position to authenticate that or to verify it because there's so much there's this sort of a blizzard of what we're told is completely authentic information. So I, you know, I have I have problems with that. I also, just to go back to the intelligence services question, I think you can't escape the fact that it's extremely useful for Western intelligence agencies who were completely discredited over Iraq to, as it were, leave things that are quite convenient for them to the amateurs. And of course, we as you know, mainstream or alternative journalists, we rush to this stuff and find it 10 times more plausible than what these tainted official intelligence services put out. So the, the, there was the wonderful case with the Bellingcat identification, supposedly, of these two GRU officers, that this was then put to officials in the UK who said, we do not dispute the findings. Well, you know, are we are we to suppose that the intelligence services had done their own work and reached similar conclusions but just not told us and found it much more convenient to have Bellingcat reach the same conclusions and for everybody to say, there you are, you know, this is a wonderful amateur organisation that really does its research and to accept it without questions asked. Yeah, final point, Owen. Surely this is very useful for the intelligence agencies. No, it's not. Bellingcat is not convenient for the intelligence services at all. It's intensely embarrassing for the intelligence services. And Mary's assertion in The the Independent a few weeks ago that Bellingcat has never come to any conclusions that are inconvenient for the West is completely untrue because they recently actually uncovered the truth of a US bombing of of a mosque in Syria. And when Mary says that we can't verify it, yes, we can verify it. The 
passport data is the one part of the investigation that you had to go into the black market to get. Everything that corroborates that passport information on the Skripal subject, the registration number of, of their cars to the GRU headquarters, the fact of their being decorated, all that is open source. It is verifiable if you care to do it. So I think that the, 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 the conspiracy theory, and I don't want to get too ad feminine with Mary about this, but there is a certain, you do have a certain form with this, because I read recently a piece that you read for the Valdai Discussion Club, a, a Kremlin-sponsored forum for a discussion about Russia, back in May, where you said that the British government's, this is after Skripal, when you said that the British government's hostility towards Russia was a manifestation of a sort of geopolitical search for relevance and was all about distracting from Brexit and so on. I mean, actually, I think what Balinkat proves is that Russia really is doing extremely nefarious and dangerous things on British soil. Let's just give Mary a chance to respond to that. OK. I very much doubt that I'm on the record as saying that the Skripal affair was an effort to distract from Brexit. I don't see it like that at all. But I would pose two questions. First of all, you're saying that Bellingcat doesn't, as it were, demand that we give them credence. It simply puts the information out there. My problem with that is that I think too many people have actually been too ready to give Bellingcat credence whether they've whether they've demanded it or not the other thing where i think there is a big distraction issue is that okay it's fine to quote identify these two suspects who were or may or may not have been milling round salisbury but the fact is that that doesn't get us any further towards solving the skripal mystery it's a gigantic blizzard of information which leaves us none the wiser about who, why or exactly when tried to kill the Skripals if they did. And that's the biggest problem in a way that I have with Bellingcat. OK, thank you both very much indeed. Hello, I'm Dominic Green. I'm Life and Arts Editor for Spectator USA. And I'm inviting you to join me on our weekly Life and Arts podcast. Each week we'll be running the gamut of American cultural life, talking to writers, actors, musicians, philosophers, and even the odd politician. So join me. Search for Spectator USA on the iTunes Store. And last, is the sex industry becoming more ethical? Vegan bondage gear and feminist porn are all the rage, in a drive to please millennial tastes. But Cosmo Landsman isn't impressed, writing in this week's magazine that guilty pleasures shouldn't be subjected to so-called political correctness. He joins me now to air his grievances, together with René Denier, manager of Shh! Women's Erotic Emporium, a female-friendly London sex shop. Cosmo, vegan bondage gear and porn that doesn't exploit women. I mean, what's there to complain about there? Well, I think these things that were... at one time considered rather dark and dirty and whatever, I think you normalize them. You make them too acceptable. You make them ethical. And I think in the process, on the good, on the good side, it leads to greater tolerance. But on the negative side, it, gets, it loses some of its darkness and its mystery and its forbiddenness. You can't take a walk on the wild side if nothing is wild. That's my basic position. Uh, Rene, you're sitting next to me with a large velvet and silk vagina with 
a little rose sewn into it, which makes me think that you quite like the idea of sex being something that you openly discuss, including with your colleagues. Of course, absolutely. I talk about sex and vaginas all day, every day. So and that's we, your job? That's my job, absolutely. I talk about orgasms. I teach women how to have orgasms and how to have longer ones and stronger ones and better ones and wetter ones, if that is what you want. But we do find that a lot of women have been brought up to not really think about their vagina or connect with it and they don't really know what they've got going on down there so the the plush vulva puppet is there to help show what's what really and what you do with it do you think that I mean, obviously this is this is your job and you're teaching women to have better sex which no woman is going to argue with but does it necessarily have to translate into i'm asking this question because i feel deeply uncomfortable about having to sit next to a large plush vagina so do we all have to be this open about sex um, even if we enjoy it you know why can't we just enjoy it privately well yeah can't we I end think... this podcast now <laughs> i think as long as you're really enjoying it then absolutely you don't need to talk about it but we meet women and couples every day who really don't enjoy sex for a variety of reasons and that could be we have a lot of women who are survivors of rape or sexual assault maybe they have vaginismus which is sort of where the vagina spasms so tightly they can't even fit a finger or a tampon so this is why it's important for us to talk about vagina but isn't the problem we we live in a time where we've never been more candid and more open about sex and yet the level of sexual happiness does not seem to be rising along at the same time. Maybe the problem is not that women can't talk about these things, but men aren't listening. <gasps> yes, I agree with you. Absolutely. Oh, that's I bad. Think, yeah. <laughs> if I may, I'm just going to share a little story about a woman who came into the shop a little while ago. So she's married, she has two children, and she came in and she was so lovely. And she said, can you help me? If I don't learn how to be sexy, my husband will leave me. So she now has a three-month-old baby and a toddler and he wants bondage and butt plugs and he wants whips and he wants like surprise visits to the office with a coat underneath she just wants a cup of tea and a cuddle mm. you know so just kind of saying to her you know a cup of tea is fine <laughs> you know it's okay you he to needs to listen yourself. yeah Cosmo how can porn really be feminist there will be a lot of feminists listening to this podcast saying well it's all about the objectification of women so even if you're paying the, the female stars of porn films top dollar it's still exploiting them I guess the well I, I, I agree with you a, a, a pro-feminist porn argument goes something like this is that women have a sexuality that they have you know uh, sexual pleasure and desire and female porn isn't about traditional male porn is all about male pleasure male performance female porn is about the woman being center of the stage her pleasure her needs in a non-exploitive, non-violent, non-misogynistic way. I guess that, that would be their argument. Yeah. Cosmo, in terms of the vegan and ethical side mm. of this, that doesn't really make it out in the open. It just means that people, in the same way as they're choosing shoes that haven't you know, hurt a cow or a crocodile, they're also doing the same for their masks and things. Well, I understand that, but there's something slightly incongruous about a practice based on the notion of domination and cruelty and all these dark passions, and at the same time being very ethical and concerned about the welfare of animals, every animal but the human animal. I mean, it's just, it, it's just one of those odd patterns. It's kind of virtue and vice signaling at the same time. And Renee, do you see a greater demand for ethical 
sex toys. Of course, toys. absolutely. What sort of ethics are people asking for? Is um, it animal welfare? Is it? Yeah, it's animal welfare. Um, what about making plastics? sure, yes, that's also really, really important. Body safe products. We sell only body safe products, for example. The what, cheap... What's body dangerous? Well, there is a, a chemical called phthalates that tends to be very uh, prevalent in cheaper sex toys like jelly. So if you open a new sex toy, you open the package and it smells. It's like this toxic stench coming at you. You shouldn't have that anywhere near your vagina. That should go straight in the bin. And there are some less ethically concerned companies who sell loads of these because it's cheap. But, but isn't there a slight problem here when you have the ethical and the erotic trying to get along together like a nice happy couple is that there's a, there's a kind of friction between the two that, 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 that people enjoy. Do we want the health and safety attitude in the bedroom is what I'm trying to say. We Don't we want dark and scary? Yes, yes. Don't we, we want dark need... and scary? No, no, no. Well, that's the, the place, safe place can... where all these things can be explored. I don't want ethics in the bedroom. I think it should be more exciting when you're, it's the, the sense of danger and you, you don't know what's going to happen. Well, it can be dangerous, but it can still be safe. So last night, for example, I did teach a class on bedroom bondage, which is exactly this. How to kind of step out of your comfort zone, take a few risks, but they are calculated risks. So nothing will happen that you and your partner haven't negotiated. So you sort of know what will happen. But I teach you how to do it safely. How many people come to your classes? Is there a sort of, is it a group class talking about sex? Yes. Yeah, so last night we had, I think, 12. So there were sort of six couples. Depending on the space, I mean, we can do, I've done a, a bondage event for about 2,000 people once. And what, what do they do? What do, they do? <laughs> what do they do in these in these bondage events or classes? I mean, do they have sex? No, okay. not on the prem. No, not on the shop. They need to do that when they get home right. or if they want to. So in the shop, it's fully dressed. It's interactive. So it's all very civilised. They come in, we offer Prosecco and cake. And then we talk about safety and negotiations and things to think about. And say, for example, oh, uh, Cosmo. Oh, <laughs> negotiations. Let's get down to the dirty stuff. If you have a partner with asthma, for example, what if an asthma attack happens you need to know whether put a pillow over their head yes <laughs> no um but yeah if something happens or we mentioned cock rings before we started recording there was one guy who was really panicked that basically his his cock ring was strangling his penis so you need to have like medical scissors handy in case you need to cut something off <laughs> if something is not the penis obviously the ring <laughs> Well, that's a relief. <laughs> yes. But yeah, no, you can absolutely be really sexy and dangerous and erotic, but you can be safe at the same time. I, I don't I don't believe that because you have to have the threat of it all going wrong. You need the danger. You need all that stuff and then being rescued at the last minute. But if you go into these situations thinking, oh, it's all there. I've got the health and safety code word. It's all, you know, it's all nice safe. You lose something. You, you gain something in safety, but you lose classes. something in sensation. Hey, you need to come to one of my classes. I shall. Thanks for that, Cosmo and Rene. And that, fortunately, is all for this week. If you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. We would love to hear from you. And do pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in the podcast, as well as more from Lynn Barber, Roger Kimball and Damien Thompson. And we also have a special offer for a limited time only. You can try a month of The Spectator in print and online for free. If you don't like it, cancel any time, even within your free month. Simply go to spectator.co.uk forward slash trial. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.
This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing.